This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. Uh, welcome to church. What a fun time we're going to have together. My name is Ron, and uh, I don't have anybody to stand up here that I can stand next to, and I don't make any pretension to be handsome, so you just, you just have to take me as I am. All right, that's how that goes. I do want to say welcome to church, and especially for those of you who haven't been here before. I know that there's always uh, some mixed emotions about stepping into a crowd where you may or may not know anybody who's there. But uh, even if you didn't know anybody on the way in, I hope that you hang around for a little bit and get a chance to meet uh, uh, some of us on the way out. I'll be hanging out in the lobby. If, uh, if you come by, I would love to meet you. And if you have questions, I'd be more than happy to answer whatever questions you have. Or if all you want to do is, is uh, just uh, meet and exchange names, I'm fine with that too. Destination eternity. You know, as uh, Bob was telling you, eventually all of us end up there. Okay? So since that's your destiny and mine, it's probably important that we learn about it. On the inside of your program, you'll find some notes. And the notes, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a folded page of notes. And uh, that'll guide you through what I'm going to say over the next few minutes. Last week. We got started in this sermon series with a sermon called In the Beginning, and we went back to the very beginning of the Bible because in order to understand heaven and eternity, you have to understand where it fits in the scope of God's great plan. And uh, so we went back and looked at the very beginning of the Bible, and uh, we, we looked at basically three things. First of all, God's original plan, and how that He created the earth much like an artist would create a painting. And how that uh, Genesis chapter 1 walks us through that, that whole process of what God did and why the earth is so beautiful. And then uh, by the time we got just two chapters later to Genesis chapter 3, we saw what happened to God's original plan because in that plan, He gave man the option of choice. And when Adam and Eve chose to do the wrong thing, we saw what tremendous destruction came into the world where Adam and Eve lived because of that original sin. And um, the world that you and I are born into is a world that uh, has lived with those four consequences of their sin, uh, the consequence of death, decay, disease, and disharmony, and how that affects everything around us and then even as God was telling them the consequences for that sin, He threw in a promise of the coming Savior. And I want to talk to you this morning about that coming Savior and, and how all of that ties into God's great plan for earth and for man and for eternity. But I came across a story this week that I wanted to read to you. It's not really taken from the Bible, but you'll get the point, all right? No, but it is about creation, and it really helps. In my notes, I just put down the little question, how far have we fallen? Because we talked about our fallen world. So from a very practical sense, here we go. You see, first God created the dog, and God said, sit, by the, sit all day by the door of your house and bark at anyone who comes in or walks past. And if you'll do that for this, I will give you a lifespan of 20 years. And the dog said, that's a lot of barking. 
I'd prefer only 10 years. If that's got to be my lifestyle, I'd prefer only 10 years. Can I give back the other 10? And God agreed. Next, God created the monkey. And he looked at the monkey and he said, entertain people, do tricks and make them laugh. And, and for this, I will give you also a lifespan of 20 years. And the monkey thought, monkey tricks for 20 years? Hmm. That's a long time to perform. If it's all the same to you, I'd like to do what the dog did. I'd prefer to give back 10 years. And God agreed. Next, God created the cow. And he said, you go into the field with the farmer and all day long, I want you to suffer under the sun. I want you to have calves and give milk to support the farmer's family. And, and uh, some of you are going to pull plows. And for this, I will give you a lifespan of 60 years. And the cow replied, oh, that's kind of tough. I mean, if it's all the same to you, uh, I'd prefer to give 40 of those years back and just do that for 20 years. Once again, God agreed. So then God created man. And God said, eat, sleep, play, marry, and enjoy your life. For this, I give you a lifespan of 20 years. Man said, only 20? <laughs> so that sounds really good. Hey, I have an idea. Could you possibly give me my 20 and the 40 that the cow gave back and the 10 the monkey gave back and the 10 that the dog gave back and that would make 80? And God said, I don't really think that's such a good idea. But man insisted and God finally said, okay. So that's why for the first 20 years we eat, sleep, play and enjoy ourselves. For the next 40 years, we slave in the sun to support our families. For the next 10 years, we do monkey tricks to entertain the grandkids. And the last 10 years, we sit on the porch and bark at anybody that goes by. <laughs> so there you have it. That's life in a fallen world. So today... We're going to talk about what God has done to redeem us from that world so that we're not stuck in that all of our lives. And so I want to invite you to that study. Take a look at the, at the screen. And I'm going to give you some words. And uh, we're going to identify two things these words all have in common. And the words are redeem, restore, renew, regenerate, reconcile, recover, and resurrect. Now those of you who know how to spell have already identified one thing, all right? But before we get to that, I want you to understand that not only are those all words that are found in the Bible, those are all things that God wants to do in your life and in mine. It's His very clear intention that you and I would be regenerated, that you and I would be resurrected, that you and I would be renewed, that we would be restored. Those are all on God's agenda for you and for me, and they're all available to us. And if we miss them, it won't because, it won't be because they weren't on God's agenda. They will, it will be because though they were on God's agenda, you and I never got on it. We decided not to, not to go with God's plan. The second thing I want you to, under, you to know, you've already figured out, they all begin with the two letters R-E. And the prefix re means again. And that's a giant hint of how God is going to redeem us. 
You remember his original plan. God said, okay, it is my goal, even though man has sinned and he's brought all this devastation and destruction into the world that I created for him, someday I'm going to make it right again. And next week, I'm going to give you what all that looks like. But before we get into what that looks like, it's important that you and I know what God went through in order for us to be able to live in that world that we're going to live in. Because it was not an easy process. And so let's take a look at what it takes to redeem man. Now, in Acts chapter 3, you will see he refers very clearly to this. He says, repent and turn to God. This was the second message that was delivered after Jesus resurrected from the dead. So we're right at the very beginning of the church And this is what I call the second gospel message recorded in the Bible. And it says, Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. By the way, does that sound pretty good to you? Yeah. I had some people say to me this morning, they didn't actually use that phrase, times of refreshing, but they said, you know, life is good. And for some of these people, it wasn't all that long ago that life wasn't very good for them. Okay? But they're starting to experience times of refreshing. And he goes on to say, And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. How's he going to send Jesus? Well, here it is. For he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to... What's the next word? Restore. Does that pique your interest a little bit? Sure does mine. For God to restore everything. So there's a hint of what we're going to talk about next week and what this, the, the coming eternity might look like for you and for me. But it, it has to do with that concept of again. So in order for God to redeem us and set everything right again like it's supposed to be, there are two divine requirements and they are both huge. And by the way, they form... The, the foundation of everything that's in Scripture, and I think it would be impossible for me this morning to under, um, it would be impossible for me to overemphasize these. They are that important. And when I say them to you, they're going to sound basic, but I can tell you that just in preparing for this message, God revealed to me things about these two principles that I had never known before, and, and, and I was brought to a point of tears. It just, The more I begin to understand this and get my mind around it, the more absolutely fabulous and incredible and and unbelievable and yet believable it is. So the first one is this. In order for salvation to happen for you and me, there has to be a completely good God. And I mean, when I say completely good, I don't mean a God that just never does anything bad. I'm talking about a God who is good all the way to the core. Now, you might not know it, but that is the central message and the foundational message for all of Scripture. And by the way, if you change the fact that God is good, if you change that only a little bit, everything else in the Bible gets changed drastically because every single principle in Scripture rests on that one foundational belief. Now let me show you how important that is. 
For instance, if you go all the way back to that very first sin that we talked about last week, you know what it was that enabled or empowered Eve to reach up and take fruit off of that forbidden tree? Very simply, Satan convinced her that God was not good. That God was holding out on her. Not that He wasn't a good guy. Not that He hadn't made a beautiful world. Not that He wasn't kind of good or even better than anything she had ever known. But He was not completely good. And because He wasn't completely good, He was withholding something from her that she would want and that would be rightfully hers. At the core of every temptation that you and I face is the concept that God has not been good enough to us. I want to show you that in several different ways. But one day a guy came to Jesus. In fact, let me read it to you from Scripture. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turned to him and said, Why do you call me good? He said, I want you to recognize that no one is good except whom? God alone. You see, at the moment that Adam and Eve made the wrong choice and invited into their world, into the world that God had created, all of these, of those four things, death, decay, disease, and disharmony, at that moment, God had a choice. And we talked about that last week. He could have just cut his losses and started all over again. And there's only one reason God didn't do that, and that is because He is good. I mean good beyond anything you and I have ever experienced. And the rest of the Bible tells us just how good God is. Now if you fast forward a little bit, you get to the life of Moses from back at that original sin. And, and one day, God said to Moses, He gave him the Ten Commandments, and God told Moses to chisel them out on two tables or tablets of stone So Moses got these two flat rocks and a chisel and a hammer and he started chiseling into them, you shall have no other gods but me. And you shall not make any sort of an idol or an image. And you shall not take God's name in vain. And he started chiseling all ten of those all the way got down to you shall not covet. And when he got all done, Moses said, thank you very much God. Okay, I'm going down to be with the people. God said, not so fast. I have a message I want to give you because these commandments are worthless unless you understand who I am and what they've come from. Because one of the things that you and I need to know is that in our fallen human nature, the natural assumption that we make is that God is not good. After Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They went and hid in the bushes. Why? Because they were pretty sure God was not going to treat them well. See, they didn't believe He was really good. So God says, okay, Moses, sit down. I want to talk to you about myself. He said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to say my name in front of you. And then I'm going to tell you about myself. And I want you to see right where God begins with His... He's going to say His name twice. And I want you to see how He begins to describe Himself. Here it is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
If you don't, God is saying to Moses, Moses, if you don't understand me, and you don't understand that that's who I am, then you're going to look at these Ten Commandments, and most of them begin with, Thou shalt not, right? And you're going to think I'm an angry God, and you're going to think I'm a selfish God, when all the while, all I'm doing is saying to you, don't do these things, because if you do, you will hate life. It will destroy you. Not because I'll be mad and throw a curse on you, because that's how life works. Can you imagine living in a society where everyone steals? We're not far from it, right? Yeah. There's a lot less freedom in our world than when I was born. It's very true. Yeah, I know. So you're going, yeah, way back then. I can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) I can tell you that when I was a child, no one locked their house. Nobody locked their house where I lived. And nobody took their keys out of the ignition of their car. In fact, the cars that were made when I was born, the steering column didn't even lock when you shut it off. That's hard to imagine, right? I know I'm old, but that's how it works. It was just a very different world. People had so much freedom. Why? Because more people kept the Ten Commandments than do today. When I was born, the divorce rate was tiny. Why? Because people took seriously the commandment that says you should not commit adultery. Nor should you covet your neighbor's wife or anything else that he has. God just said, Moses, you need to understand that these commandments come from the heart of a God who genuinely loves people. Because among everything else that you should know about me, Moses, you must know I'm good. Good to the core. Perfectly good. So what did God decide in His goodness? Now that He had human beings who were sinful and living in a destructive world, here's what God decided. There are no human beings who can settle this account. So God in His goodness decided that He would accept the payment of substitutionary payment. We'll talk about that. That's the rest of this. And that leads us to the second thing that we must know. By the way, one more scripture here. David says in Psalm chapter 34, Taste and see that God is what? Good. That's the overwhelming message of Scripture. So the second thing, the second divine requirement is a willing and qualified Savior. Let's see if I can break this out for you. First of all, you must know that holiness is the foundation of eternity. God's holiness. Sometimes people will say to me, Pastor, what does it take to get to heaven? You notice that guy came to Jesus and said, Master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to write this down in the margin of your Bible. There is one and only one requirement to get into heaven. No exceptions. Are you ready? Perfect holiness. That's it. Nobody's getting in that isn't perfectly holy. 
You know why it has to be that way? In fact, notice what the Bible says. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. That's the one and only requirement. And you know something? You and I should jump up and down and cheer and shout and yell and say, Thank you, God, that that's exactly how it is. You know why? (laughs) Because if God lets anything into heaven that's impure, it's not going to be any better than earth. You understand? Yeah. If anything impure enters heaven, then not only has earth fallen, but eternity has fallen, and eternity will be under the curse, and that's not any good news. That's terrible news. And so God says, okay, the one quality it takes to live in my presence and to live with me eternally is perfect holiness, and there are no exceptions to that. And here's how you know there are no exceptions, because not only does God's holiness, the foundation of eternity that guarantees us that it will be pure, but the second thing is God's justice. Unlike human justice, which sometimes can be bought if you have a good enough lawyer and enough money, or if you know the judge, God has perfect justice. And I look at this as kind of like the ultimate law of cause and effect. Because ultimate justice says every single thing that's done that is not perfectly holy will require some form of punishment or penalty and everything that's done that's perfectly holy will require some form of reward or recompense uh, or, or compensation. Both of those are actually very good. They are what keep order in the world. And by the way, the less justice we have in our country, the more chaos we have. Have you noticed that? Yeah. That's just the way life works. It's God's justice that keeps order. By the way, would you like to have order in heaven or chaos? I'm all for order, okay? I would like to know that there's a thing, a place for everything and everything in its place and we're all doing what we're supposed to do and I don't have to lock the door of my home in heaven because there's bad dudes up there. I would like to be able to just say, leave the door open, I like the breeze blowing through and not have to worry about it. Yes. It's God's justice that keeps order in His world. And so here's what the Bible says, Turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake His faithful ones. They will be protected forever. There's the positive side of God's justice. Here's the other side. But the offspring of the wicked will be what? Cut off. There's the other side. You see both sides of God's justice. No exceptions. So now God has a problem. Okay? And that is, He's got all these people He loves, but none of them can come to heaven because the standard for heaven is perfect holiness and His justice will require that He condemns them because they're all sinners. But there's an additional quality God has, and that's His love. Okay? And God's love is what's going to prevent him from just abandoning and destroying his world. God wants to do something about that. And so the Bible says this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The important thing here is that in his love, God said, here is how I'm going to solve this problem. And statement number four is how God solved this problem. In Jesus, God's holiness, justice, and love all met in perfect harmony. Was Jesus holy? Perfectly holy. Was, was, was God just? 
in accepting the payment of Jesus as the, as the penalty for our sins? Absolutely. You know why? There's a little thing that went on in heaven, and we're going to read a passage later on that will refer to this, but I want you to see what God said. God said, okay, I will accept a substitutionary payment for mankind. Here are the only catches. Number one, it has to be sinless. Because any payment that's given that is sinful can't accept. When that person dies, they die for their own sin, not for other people's sins. And the second thing, which was even harder to meet, was it has to be a human being. Can I take my local cockroach and offer that to God? Say, here. God would say, nah, it's not going to work. It's got to be a human being. Now, here's something else the Bible makes very clear that I had never realized. It couldn't even be an angelic being. Yeah, the Bible's very clear about this. So what happened was, God did a quick search of earth, and He said, guess what? There are no sinless human beings on the face of planet earth. So I can't get any substitutionary payment there. He did a quick search of heaven, and though there were plenty of sinless beings, guess what was not in heaven? No humans. And so God said, I will go. I will become a human being. I will live a sinless life, and I will give my life as the payment for man's sin. You know, friends, is God good? Do you know anybody else who would do that? It's unheard of. We'll see that in a little bit. Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3. Everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. What was it that it takes to get into heaven? What was it? Perfect holiness. That's God's standard. And you see it there. Yet God, with undeserved, what's that come from? His goodness, undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. Wow. How could He do that? He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood, and God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just, and He declares sinners to be right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. It's that very thing that we remember in this church every single Sunday through communion. It is God's wonderful goodness that even though He could have condemned us, He said, no, I will make a way for all of my people to be saved, even if it means I have to go and become a human being and live a sinless life and then make that sacrifice myself. And He did. So we're going to be passing through the, the aisles some trays, and on the trays are small portions of bread and, and individual portions of juice. As Jesus himself said, the portions of bread represent his body that was broken for us, and the portions of juice represent his blood that just out of the passage I just read to you is, sim is symbolic of his life that was given for us. So we would invite you to participate with us if you'd like to. 
If you're new to this church, we invite you to do that as well. We would never pressure you to do that. And if you're not in a place where you're comfortable doing that, that's fine. Pass the tray to your neighbor while the rest of us partake and remember. But at least while we're doing that, I would ask you to think for a few minutes about a God who loves you enough that he would leave heaven and become a human being and pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. Worship team is going to sing a song to help us in that remembrance. And I would invite you just to think about that as they sing. Suffering I do drink Of its work I do sing
gently to my knees and I am lost for words so lost in love I'm really broken holy surrender constantly beckoning us back to you. Thank you for uh, your example of the cross. It proves just how much you do love us. Amen. Let's take communion together. I trembled as I saw a scroll held by the one who sits at the throne. It was covered with writing on both sides and sealed with seven official seals. And I saw a strong and mighty angel who commanded the attention of everyone, shouting, Who is worthy to break the seven seals and reveal the scroll? But there was no one in heaven or on earth who was worthy to open the scroll. I cried bitterly because no one was worthy. No one would dare step forth. Then one of the elders kneeled down and whispered, Don't cry. Don't give up hope. Look, the lion from Judah's tribe, King David's own son, has won the victory. He can break the seven seals. He can open the scroll. Watch and don't give up hope. Then I saw a lamb standing in the center by the throne. He was surrounded by four holy creatures and the elders of God's people. He appeared to have suffered a mortal wound, but was yet alive. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven messengers sent out to the whole earth. Then the lamb stepped forward as everyone watched. No one uttered a wound. Not a sound was spoken. Then he took the scroll from the right hand of the ancient one who sits on the throne. And as they watched, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell to their knees. Each had a harp and golden bowl filled with the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Only you are worthy to take the scroll and break the seals, for you were killed, and by your death you purchased people for God from every corner of the earth. You have made them a nation of priests who serve you on earth. Again, I looked and I heard angels, too many to number, as they stood around the throne and sang in a loud voice, The, the Lamb who was killed, only he is worthy, worthy of power, wealth, wisdom, and strength, honor, glory, and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven, on the earth and in the sea, 
All creatures in the universe join their voices into one deafening chorus. To, to him who sits upon the throne and, and to, to the, the Lamb be praise and honor, glory and might forever and ever. Amen. You know, John saw that in a vision, but that's not really all that imaginary. Um, uh, that, that picture, that's out of the book of Revelation, and that's a picture kind of somewhat into the past, but also kind of somewhat into the future. It's, it's just a glimpse into heaven. And um, I, I want to point out some things about that particular Scripture because they are key to our understanding of what God went through to redeem us. Because that picture kind of takes what we've talked about this morning and it puts it in a nutshell. First thing I want you to know is the first thing that took place was there was a scroll in heaven that no one seemed to be able to, to take and undo the seals, indicating that they were the rightful owner. Because in their culture, once a scroll had been sealed, the only person who could open the scroll was either the owner of the scroll or someone that he had personally designated. But a quick search in heaven was... Well, didn't reveal anybody that could. A search on earth. Now, what was that scroll? Well, apparently, that scroll was the deed to earth and everything in it. Because what takes place when they open the scroll is all the things that are going to happen to this earth. And that's all of the rest of the book of Revelation is about what happens to this earth. Because that's the title deed to the earth. Now, you and I should be jumping up and down because in whose hand is the title deed to earth? In Jesus. How did He get the title deed? Well, you can see the next thing that, that was said, not only was the scroll, but there was no one, it was not able to be opened. No one could open it. Why? That's that thing of a quick search of earth. There were no perfect human beings. A quick search of heaven. There were, no, there were plenty of perfect beings, but no humans. And Jesus... God came to earth in the form of Jesus, and therefore He was qualified to open the scroll. And yet, if you remember what was said in the passage, it was said, don't weep and don't cry because the Lion of the tribe of Judah has won the victory and He can open the scroll. And John, the apostle who was writing this, turned to see the Lion, and what did he see instead? He saw a Lamb looking as if it had been sacrificed. Both of those things are true of Jesus. The lion is the symbol of, of, of reigning and ruling. What do we call the lion? The king of the jungle, right? Yeah. And so John looked and he expected to see a mighty ruler. And yes, Jesus is the ruler of heaven and earth. But before he could become the ruler of earth, what did he have to be first? He had to be the lamb that was sacrificed. And there he was. And then they sang a new song. And that, that the reason it's a new song is because in the annals of eternity, nothing like this had ever happened that God would decide to come and become a human being. That's just beyond my ability to grasp that God would look in earth and see no one who could qualify, would look in heaven and see no one who could qualify and say, okay, I'll go. 
I will take on flesh. I will be made like human beings. And I will live that life. And I will give my life for my people. No wonder the angels sang a new song. And they said, you are worthy. Why? Because you have purchased for God from men, people of all tribes and tongues and nations. You have purchased a people for God. And they will be a kingdom of priests. Wow. And then it says, and they will reign on the earth forever. That, my friends, is a sneak peek. That's a preview of what we're going to talk about next week. What will that be like? That is the story of the Bible from cover to cover. I want to close by asking you a question. Since then, it takes a God who is completely good, and we have that, and it takes a willing and qualified Savior, and we have that. Does that then mean that heaven is our default destination? Well, apparently, most of us Americans believe that. You know how I know that? Because if you were to go on the street, I just looked it up a couple of days ago. If you go on the street, you will find that for every one American who believes he's going to hell, there are 120 of us who believe we're going to heaven. I wonder if we're willing to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. What do you think? <laughs> exactly. You know why? Because most Americans believe that because I'm born and I'm a human being, I'm automatically on my way to heaven unless I really mess it up bad. You know, if I do the Hitler thing or the Jeffrey Dahmer thing or the Saddam Hussein thing, you know, if I do something really, 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 really bad, then then I'll go to heaven. But by and large, if I'm a fairly decent human being, then I'm going to go to my eternal destination, which is heaven after all, because I haven't forfeited it. Now, I want to tell you that on that day when you and I stand before God, it's not God's not going to make His decision by setting up voting machines and letting Americans vote. I know we're used to making decisions that way, but no, there's a thing called truth that is true whether you and I vote for it or not or believe in it or not, it's still true. So what does God say? We already looked at it. For all of us have sinned and we have fallen short of God's glorious standard. What is it that it takes to get into heaven? Perfect holiness. So you know what that means? Our default destination is not heaven. But here's the good news. Our chosen def destination can be. Because there's actually a third thing that's required for God to redeem you. The first two come from Him. The first is a completely good God, and we've got that. The second is a willing and qualified Savior, and we've got that. But the third thing that's required to redeem you is a personal choice, and that's something God won't do for you, and I can't. But it is the message of Scripture. The great news is that though we are destined for an eternity away from God because we are sinners, that God has made a way for all of us to be saved and the invitation is open to everybody. So it's kind of like, y'all come. That's the deal. Notice what the Bible says. Go into all the world. Preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But boy, you don't want to miss out on this. 
I, I, I read a story this week I want to read to you. It says, it's a true story. It's, a, it's out of the life of Ruthanna Metzger. I'll let her tell it to you. These are her words. I was invited to sing at the wedding of one of Seattle's wealthiest couples. According to the invitation, the reception was to be held on the top two floors of the Columbia Tower, which happens to be the northwest tallest skyscraper. My husband and I were honored and greatly excited to be invited. So at the reception, the waiters were in tuxedos and they offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages and the bride and the groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led from the next to the top floor up to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut the satin ribbon draped across the bottom of that staircase and they formally announced that the wedding feast was about to begin and the bride and groom ascended that stairway followed by their guests. The top of the stairs, a maitre d' with a hard-bound book greeted the guests outside the doors. Formally, but also very personably, he asked, May I have your name, please? I am Ruthanna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy, I said with confidence and maybe just a little pride, too. He searched the M's, puzzled. He said, I'm not finding it here. Would you please spell it for me? I spelled each letter very distinctly. That would be M-E-T-Z-G-A-R. Once again, he searched the guest's registrar, but to no avail. I'm sorry, your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, I implored. I'm a professional singer. I sang at the wedding. With firmness, the gentleman replied, Ma'am, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did at the wedding. Without your name in this book, I can't let you attend this banquet. Embarrassed and disappointed, we followed a waiter who escorted us to the service elevator. Along the way, we passed beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, magnificent ice sculptures. Adjacent to the banquet room, we saw a live orchestra preparing to play as people danced, each musician dressed in a dazzling white tuxedo. Neither Roy nor I spoke to each other as we rode the elevator to the ground floor. Silently, we made our way to our car, got in, and began our ride home. Roy was the first to break the silence. Sweetheart, what happened? I hated to admit it, but I knew. In tears, I replied, when the invitation came, I was busy, and I never got around to filling out the RSVP. Besides, I was the singer at the wedding. Surely I didn't need an RSVP. I figured everyone would know me. Now friends, that's a very clear picture. Someday you and I are going to stand before Jesus the book will be opened, and the book is the Lamb's book of life. And the book of Revelation says, everyone whose name is found in the Lamb's book of life, the Lord says, come, I've got a place prepared for you, and you are going to have the time of eternity. Come. And for everyone who thought 
Well, obviously I'm going there. I haven't blown it, have I? And for everyone who thought, oh, I did enough good in my life, it doesn't matter what you did because, friends, we don't get into heaven because we have been good. We get into heaven because God has been good to us. If you haven't made that choice, I invite you to make it while I pray. Father, in the quietness of this moment, we pray together for every one of us that none of us would get so busy in life that we don't fill out your RSVP. That we would not take a single day of life for granted, but that we would recognize every day that you give us is a day that we're invited to fill out that RSVP, send it on ahead, and to get our ticket ready and to anticipate with joy what you are about to do in our lives and in our world. And, and it's with eager anticipation we wait. But mostly we wait because we have a ticket. So, Father, we would pray this morning that for those who haven't made that decision, that they would even now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.